Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Okay, hey, this is uh, Paul Axton, and today I'm here with my cohorts in all that is good, and that is Matt. And Matt is uh, going to tell us all about David Bentley Hart's view of spirit today. And I'm here with John, and John's going to explain why Douglas Campbell is a bit too Lutheran <laughs> in his estimate. And uh, we're, we are discussing then uh, the idea of resurrection, but also in this a kind of depiction of the problem of a dualism or of an apparent dualism. And I think this may be where the, the issue arises as to what we might mean by that. And the overcoming of the dualism, that is, how do you overcome this thing? And so I think it will be an interesting uh, take then on, uh, again, what we might mean, the practical implications of resurrection. I think a great place to start would just be to define dualism. So, John, what, uh, we'll, we'll start with you. What is a dualism and why is it a problem? A dualism in some way is holding two things as absolute, like opposites. What ends up being problematic in different ways is that to have one, you need the other. So you can only know one of the halves of this binary through the other. And so for Christians, that could be problematic depending on what you're thinking of dualistically, right? Like we wouldn't want to think of good and evil dualistically because, of course, good isn't known in and through evil. Evil is absurd and good is primary. Uh, on the other hand, sometimes there's been a dualism at, at certain times in both Greek philosophy or in, in Christianity even that would hold that, you know, matter, the material world in and of itself is evil, and uh, then you have God or the spiritual realm is good. That sort of just knee-jerk reaction to the world has caused people to have different views about forms of Gnosticism or proto-Gnosticism, or is the God of the Old Testament somehow different than the God of the New Testament? You know, the God of the Old Testament creates a material thing, so it's somehow less than the God of the New Testament. So dualism can be tricky in that sense and enters in uh, to lots of different ways of thinking. Not just It's not just that it affects Christianity or Greek philosophy, but uh, it's problematic in that sense. Dualism is a little bit more than just holding something to be a binary. It does have to do with doing identity through difference. It often has ramifications, at least in Christianity, for how Christians understand the world. So the spectrum there can go from pantheism to where we there is no dualism, everything is just God. Or on the other end, you might have a world totally evacuated from God. Those are all just issues that I think come up with dualism. Paul probably has quite a bit to add. That's what I was thinking. I mean, Paul, you've done a ton of work uh, on this and given, I don't know, countless lectures where this is the focus. So for you, what is, what is a dualism and why is it a problem? I think John has described it well, then, you know, then postmodern thought, which I think is just a kind of rediscovery of a Christian understanding, but Derrida has, has delved into this very well. 
And so there's the idea of identity through difference, and of course it is the, a kind of notion of an absolute difference, of a reified difference, which if you think about it, and this is what a lot of the work of Derrida is doing, is a, a recognition of the inherent contradiction in this. And that is that you cannot have an absolute difference and use that as a point of comparison so that there is this explosive violence that is inherent to this notion of dualism. It can go one of two ways, that the identity through difference is just a continued accentuation of dwelling in the difference. You get this in Gnosticism, in the notion of a libertine sort of Gnosticism, in which you're going to accentuate you know, the liberties of the flesh, and that you're not bound by that. Or it can, in fact, go the other direction that identity through difference reduces to sameness. So when we talk about a pantheism, or it can also then fall into itself. So both dangers are there. In, in what I would take to just, I think that, you know, Gnosticism is just the prototypical problem of human thought. We naturally think in binaries, and what we tend to do with those binaries is to make them absolute. And this is, you know, whether it's theory over and against practice, the inside over and against the outside, heaven over and against earth, flesh over and against spirit. The danger is then that we, you know, in some way we absolutize those categories. And of course, it's an unstable sort of understanding that is going to collapse one of the two pairs. So that dualism tends to just end up being a kind of monism. You get this in Buddhist thought that I, I think Buddhism works then in and through the same sort. You know, that once you do Hegel, there's really no difference between Eastern and Western thought. Hegel is very Eastern in his understanding. And so his dialectic is really a dialectic between nothing and something good and evil. You know, he's just really working with dualism. But of course, what you get in a, it ultimately is, you know, if you think in terms of thesis, antithesis, though he may never have used that language, that's a nice summary of his language. And the result is a synthesis in which you have neither one. So, in a sense, dualism is a shorthand way of describing, to my mind, the failure, not simply of human thought, but I think that it's really a dualism in which Paul is describing the psychic conflict in Romans 7, that agonistic conflict uh, between the mind and the body, you know, however you want to describe that conflict, the law of the mind, the law of the flesh. It's not that either one of those is correct. It's that that form of thought in Paul's summation is to dwell in the body of death. So that this is what Derrida and a lot, a lot of postmodern thinkers are returning to Paul because what they're recovering or seeing in Paul is what they're finding in their own thought. I mean, this is why Lacan and Zizek are important. You know, you can dwell here, you can just live with this thing and imagine, oh, well, there is no cure for it. And that's kind of Derrida. There's just, you know, a kind of impossibility of getting beyond this thing. 
because it's so inherent to human thought. I think that we almost need to go there and recognize how much this thing binds us. And that's, I think we can have an appreciation for post-modernity in its description of the way in which dualism, Hegelianism, you know, however you want to describe it, or this, for my, to my mind, this is just what Gnosticism is illustrative of. So that's, a, that's kind of a brief depiction of what is taking place, you know, in a book like John, that you're going to get the notion, oh, well, John's a dualist. Well, of course, no, that's a misunderstanding. Light and dark are not dualistic categories for John. For John, the light overcomes the darkness. Life and death, those are not a dualism, that life defeats death. And you can just go through the, the you know, supposed dualism of the New Testament. They're not actual dualisms, but what we see is the one is defeating the other and is ultimately uh, privileged over the other. So, Paul, I've got a question. And I don't think it's to, I don't actually think it's to argue with anything you said, but I, I'm just curious to see where you would place limits on this whole conversation. So like different ways of thinking about this, especially when it comes to like human thought, understanding, knowledge, experience, is would you say that God's grace works in such a way that God chooses to save us by incorporating our human experience into a participation in our salvation? Or would you say that God chooses to save us and God's grace is other than our experience, so we're brought out of, or we make a clean break with normative ways of human knowledge, understanding, experience, etc.? Well, I don't know that that's the, the proper choice. In other words, is it one or the other? But we, what we are given in human thought are binaries. And so I think that what is overcome in Christ is, in other words, it, it is thought, but understand it's also a world uh, in which it, human experience, human emotions, uh, that the holistic thing is really what we're talking about in these dualisms. And so, yeah, I think there is an overcoming of these categories. But, of course, we're still going to speak English or whatever language uh, we have. We're still going to operate as human beings. And so we're still going to be subject to those categories that have been thrown out of balance in our failed understanding. I, you know, I just think the Genesis depiction. So when you're, you say, you know, it is a world, are you, okay. when you say it is a world, do you mean that uh, it is somewhat still correspondent with a reality that's outside of us? Or do you think that that world is purely, uh, you know, just the world, an idealistic world? How are you using the term in this context? Am I... Am I a German idealist? No, no, I'm just trying to get... Uh, so, I mean, I would... The pushback could be that, well, hold on a second, that may all be good and true, but to say that all human thought is in binaries, and so it's automatically subject to this dualism that's problematic, and we're overcoming that is basically to agree... No, you... No, you, you okay, go ahead. Yeah, you've already overstated it, but go ahead with your question. Well, no, I thought I was just... I thought I was just quoting you directly. So, 
help me uh, help say it in another way. <laughs> yeah, it's not that every binary results in a dualism. So you're saying the nature of human thought is binary, but it's not not necessarily dualistic. And so the characteristic form of language of binaries of you know just the way the the physical way that the the language functions is not of necessity uh, problematic. Uh, I'm not quite sure what you're getting at, but obviously we have truth and reality that are available to us that we all have, you know, that's not something that's just absolutely unavailable to us. But there is a, there is the sense that this, you know, the Bible will portray this as darkness, enslavement, or even in cosmic lang language of a mystery, that in some way what has happened in Christ is that which had been a mystery is now revealed, is unfolded. I think this is a way of looking at the Old Testament. Is the Old Testament in itself, apart from Christ, the revelation of Christ? No. In other words, that the, the Old Testament becomes the mystery revealed through Christ. And so this is the way that Paul and the other writers of the New Testament are going to talk. That the basic material may be the same, but given Christ, it unfolds in a very different fashion. And so I think that's a way of answering your question. We, have, we may have the same basic material, but given the reality of Christ, we are no longer subject to the enslavement, the mystification, the obscuring uh, that is just the failed human tendency. I, mean, I would take it a step further, though, and say that what God does for us by coming in Christ is God comes to us in a way that's already intelligible to human ways of knowing. Oh, absolutely, yeah. It's intelligible but it's revolutionary. The options that I was laying out are just two historic options. I mean, is grace cooperative or not? So everybody, mostly, except for Pelagius maybe, would agree that you know grace is operative. It's in us, but not of us. But not everybody agrees that the way that God operates is also consistent with who we are, such that it's also cooperative. So does God, in his wisdom, choose to save us in such a way that it's participatory. Not everybody would say yes. And so that's sort of the, I think, the two ends of the spectrum there. Uh, th you know, Christ came and he spoke a human language. He came and dwelt. Everything about him is human and divine. And that's a possibility that I do not think was open to human experience and recognition apart from Christ. So clearly what we have is a redemption of all things human, of all these human categories. That language is perfectly adequate. Culture is perfectly adequate. That there's nothing inherently wrong. But what is it then that is confounding, mystifying, enslaving? Well, it's to imagine that these things are an end in and of themselves. Language is an example. I don't know if most people have an experience of this, but in Japan, and I think the same thing was true with, among the Jews, there was the notion, you know, among that, well, if you speak Hebrew, that's sort of, you know, they kind of pictured they were the ones closest to God. In Japan, you know, only Japanese speakers 
are capable of the true key, the true spirit. And so what we can do is just take ordinary human categories and absolutize them and reify them. It's not that there is, in fact, inherently anything wrong with those categories, but they become idolatrous categories when they're closed off then from their proper functioning that I think is revealed to us in Christ. And I think that's what, you know, that's the, it's not the... Does the way, does the way that humans come to knowledge remain the same as in Christ we're redeemed when we come to a knowledge of God? Or are those two different orders of knowing? Yeah, I think uh, that there is a knowing that can follow the same description I'm talking about that a knowing that imagines its own ends and its own foundations. But ordinary human knowing, you know, oh, I know the bird is sitting in the tree. There is that ordinary sort of knowing that obviously we're not going to change up mathematics and physics and other things because we're Christians. But That's not what I'm asking here. I'm that, saying is the way that we know mathematics and physics similar to the way we come to know God. That's, yeah, obviously, that what we have in Christ, I believe, is apocalyptic in that sense. That's part of what it, it means. Is Yeah, well, I don't know that it's obvious to everybody. That it's a breaking in to an absolutized, in other words, a kind of closed form of knowing. I, I think that we can make two mistakes in regard to this understanding we can make Christianity a kind of ghetto in which it does not relate to human knowing in its usual sense. In other words, I think it relates to all forms of human knowing. Christianity is not cut off from those forms of knowing. So one notion would be to make it a ghetto. The other would be to imagine that it just flattened out what we have in Christ and Revelation uh, you know, and imagine that it comes to us as a natural outgrowth of progress and culture and science. And well, to that's not that. really, that's not what... I'm just laying out the extreme options. And so I don't think we want to say either one of those things. John, I feel like, um, I feel like John might be feeling especially froggy today, and I feel <laughs> like he, he has... He has something that he wants to say to us, and I want to hear it. Oh, no, not yet. I mean, I I, I actually don't know how we're going to get what, say, there. Just, just um, say what you got. You, you got a uh, problem. Okay. Go ahead and say what <laughs> To me, it sounded like you definitely disagreed, that, that, and I could be wrong here, but that, you know, the way that we know mathematics and these other things, there is at least in some way on a continuum with the way that we know God. Am I right or wrong? See, it's hard for me to... I. I wouldn't use the language Paul was using, and so I don't want to just be talking past each other. Mainly not not because I think that language is wrong, but just because I'm not capable of using that language in this context. But just the language of operative and cooperative grace. So in the sense that I think most people, if you lay out the two ends of the spectrum in this sense, is one being Pelagius, one being Calvin. So you have Pelagianism, you know, that uh, we don't actually need grace from without. We already have grace from within. It's something that's just given uh, in our humanity. And, you know, Adam is a real bad example, but it's possible for us to be human apart from Christ. Well, I don't, I wouldn't agree with that. Calvin, on the other hand, doesn't really have room for cooperative grace in the sense that 
for Calvin, you know, grace is purely an operation of God. And even it's not even clear that when he thinks in terms of operative grace that it's within humans at all because it becomes imputed rather than infused. But I think, uh, you know, there's lots of options in the middle. So it's, there's no need to just be nailed down to any one point. I think it's a pretty broad spectrum. But to think about grace in terms of relationships. So uh, the first thing we would have to say is God has created in such a way that reality, the world, is distinct from God. We're not pantheists. And yet, uh, which would also mean that the world is completely dependent upon God and therefore could never be said to be uh, or to exist apart from God or its intelligibility isn't uh, purely of its own, although we can talk about the world intelligently uh, without you know, all recourse to divine uh, inspiration or revelation or something like that. But then the next step would be to think in terms, well, if we're, we have a relation to God in which we're totally dependent, how does God choose to relate to us? And this is where we can hold operative and cooperative grace in balance. So operative grace is, uh, you know, it, it is a type of infused grace. It's something that's given to us, though it's a gift. Well, cooperative grace is, is God in his wisdom and love choosing to save us in such a way that it's like, consistent um, or resonates with human knowledge and experience. God comes to us as a human. And so it's not as if we have one way of knowing that gets replaced by another way of knowing, but rather our way of knowing natural things is now infused with the grace of the Holy Spirit such that our natural desires and our natural knowledge um, may flourish and grow to their supernatural end and come to their supernatural end. I don't think I was saying anything different than that. See, actually, I think you may agree with it because you are comfortable with saying Jesus is, you know, I mean, in some way that creation is moving towards a whole, right? And that this is given to us in Christ. So that would be to say, like, if you're going to hold that belief, I don't think you can logically say that there are two ways of knowing. There's one way of knowing that's purely natural and maybe even fallen or mostly fallen. And then there's a way of knowing in Christ that's totally separate from that. That just doesn't, all that doesn't connect up in the end. Mm -hmm. So maybe we do agree. Right. Maybe a better way to say it is there's two things you can do with normal human knowing. The, the knowing can be made an end in and of itself. Okay. That knowing is not going to become disconnected from human language or human the, the ordinary modes of knowing are not going to become undone in Christ, absolutely not. But the idea is that knowing God is going to change up those ordinary categories in Christ, that we recognize, well, we're still going to use English, that we're still reliant upon the necessities of enculturation, but those things no longer are an end in and of themselves. Cooperative grace is one in which those things take their proper place in God's good purposes. Our form of knowledge does not change, is what I'm saying. Are you agreeing with that? Uh, what, how do you mean form of knowledge? Well, because you keep, like, so the way we come to know, not just merely that we keep speaking English and we keep thinking in categories that we, that, you know, correspond to reality, but the way we come to know, 
like the way knowledge works. Maybe you don't think there's any kind of such thing as a private knowledge. Do I believe a private in a private language? Is that your question? Yes. So is language merely public, or is there a sense in which we have thoughts that occur before before they occur in uh, public discourse, where it would make sense in some given context? In other words, the that we're falling, we're going into a Wittgensteinian sort of discussion here, and so maybe it needs to be made clear: it's not a matter. Does one believe that thought? is inward and outward, that would be one way of talking about it. But it's to say that, no, there is no such thing as a pure private language, that I don't have a language in which I communicate with myself that is different than the communication that I have uh, that is other than myself. Those are the same things. I'm asking you if there is a way that we come to knowledge, and it's just usually described as an inner word, but is there a way that we come to knowledge that precedes language? Well, it depends on what you mean by precedes language. Do you mean that does language in some way encompass everything that we know? Or is it that emotions, intuitions, feelings, attitudes... In other words, you have to be careful when you're, when you're talking about language. And, and, of course, we don't know where language ends and these other things begin, that they seem to be integrated into one another. But to imagine that we have a private language in which my knowing is something I just do in my head, I'm afraid is to fall into the dualism, precisely the dualism, that we would want to resist. Well, I don't, I mean, I wasn't claiming that knowing is something we only do in our head. Uh, just trying to get to the, I, because I don't think we are agreeing, but then... I don't believe in a private language. Uh, at all. No, I don't believe that... I would say <laughs> thought precedes language, and you don't agree with that. No. So I don't think we mean the same thing by knowing. And again, I think you would have to define what you mean by thought. Um, yeah, the grasp of, uh, you know, a connection. When you, you grasp some... I mean, it's, you could think of it in terms of phantasm, like a, a grasp of an idea before it even proceeds to language in the sense that before you have proceeded to reflect upon it, that there's a grasp of knowledge. I don't know if I would use the word knowledge, but in perception, there's a grasp of reality. That's, there's a grasp of meaning. There we go. There's a grasp of meaning before we have... Uh, next moved to reflection upon that meaning through language. Do you have a full grasp on the meaning without articulation? Well, I no. I mean, even after you articulate it, you probably don't have a full grasp on the meaning. I don't think we're going to pin down. When we come to know, say, when we come to know whatever it is, I don't care, um, uh, an equation, or when we come to know uh, something about the world, is the way that we come to know God fundamentally different than that? I think that's a pretty straightforward question. In Christ it is fundamentally different. And let me explain what I mean by that. That apart from Christ, we cannot know properly. Uh, that apart from Christ, knowledge, human knowledge, is going to take on, in Lonergan's terms that you deployed, it is going to take on a kind of imbalance or bias. And that is the history of human thought, that it does tend in Campbell uh, toward a foundationalism. 
That is, that what knowing would do outside of Christ is serve as its own end. And so what it what is meant is, can we know properly apart from Christ, is not that the way of knowing is in some way undone, but the forms or the uh, the role that knowledge can play, I mean, this is just the New Testament, that human wisdom, gnosis, uh, is out of balance, and that's part of the sin problem. And knowledge then will take its proper role, that there will be a transformation of the mind, and that's part of salvation. So how do we come to know Jesus? Uh, through the revelation that is given to us, it's not through our own capacities for obtaining being, the being of God in and through the being of the world. So, yeah, I, okay, it's not but a, my question is, if the way of knowing is different, then how do you come to know Jesus? Is it not through the same way you come to know? So is the way you come to know Revelation somehow different? Is there an operation of God that has made this way of knowing different than the way you would come to know other things? Or does God not come to us in human experience? Yeah, obviously that Christ has come to us in history and language and experience. I'm asking you, how do you come to know the incarnate one? And you're saying that it's a, on a different order than the way we would come to know other things that are true? How does that work? That's called incarnation. Is it a working of grace? Is it the, the role of the Holy Spirit uh, that is involved in some way in our coming to know Christ? I think it is, and it is, of course, through the, the, through the church, through the preaching of the gospel, uh, that all of those things that are given a direct role of the work of God uh, that are not necessarily there when I come to know that water is H2O. So is it operative or cooperative or both? That it is cooperative. In other words, it's not like, oh, I have some sort of ecstatic experience that uh, in some way supersedes or is a private language, that that's why Christ came to us publicly. He came to us through a culture. He came to us through a language. But of course, it's extraordinary in that here God is enfleshed. Here is the incarnation. And so it's not that language was ever adequate to do these things in and of itself, or that human knowing per se was adequate to God apart from Christ. Yeah, he's come. Uh, it, cooperative grace means that God has come into come to us in such a way that he's including the way we would function and making that participate in salvation. That's why I don't understand why then you say that it's a there's um, it's not the same way we would come to know other things <laughs> because that is the same way we would that's what cooperative grace means basically is our way of knowing and our way of being is being included and brought into the way we know God. That, that part of what is meant, I think, in cooperative is obviously that God's grace is at work in and through ordinary means. But it's still the grace of God, and it's still human categories through which he's working. So then you would agree that God uses normative ways of human knowing in our coming to know God? Uh I'm not describing okay. two radical different ways of knowing. I'm satisfied. I'm just saying that in a dualism, 
that what happens is that our knowing presumes to be a kind of end in and of itself. And so identity through difference, you might describe as a human tendency, a human, you know, that's you get in Gnosticism, actually just the uh, pantheism. I think they're all examples of the extremes. It's not that there is something inherently wrong with human language or human thought. It's that that human thought misdirected becomes, or, or in a, a closed off from God, becomes a dualism, and that's our topic, right? So it's not- um, I think that the way, the way of knowledge is that we do grasp things in phantasms before language. I think language is a reflection on uh, already a, a grasp of meaning. But I, when I say grasp of meaning, I don't mean that in the sense that we fully understood something. Uh, do you believe in a private language, John? I mean, this actually, I, I, you know, I'm thinking William Desmond does this whole thing where, like, when you come to know something, there's a, there's a whole list of things that are happening. Like, at first you grasp in a univocal sense, and then in an equivocal sense, then a, you, univocally once again, and then you move to an analogical sense of what you're... And this is all happening... I mean, I don't think you could articulate that happening in time. I don't like that could all happen in one second. But it's uh, this idea that, like, yeah, I think that we're grasping meaning before uh, before language has entered into the picture. Though I don't, I wouldn't say that in any way we've like exhausted or fully understood anything. But that's just to say that I think when we gr- grasp meaning, that and this is my like the use of the word the world, right? Like. I think there is meaning to be had out in, in the world out there, but I also don't think it's constructed apart from the interplay with ourselves. And at some point, like that definitely enters into language. But uh, I, I think that it's a way of knowing, not just one or the other. Like, what do you, when you say inner language, what do you, like, what, what do you mean exactly? I didn't use that word. I used the word private language. Private language, that's right. I was using the word inner word, which is, that's a, that's a way a lot of people describe what Aquinas is doing, um, but it's not a private language. It's when they say word, they're thinking more on terms of like logos meaning. Like the language that you're using is very specific, I feel like, uh, to the work that you did with psychoanalysis and where that intersection is. So I wanted to see if we could bring what you're saying into conversation with more conventional ways Christians have talked. <laughs> I'm just too unconventional. So I actually didn't start off by trying to argue. I mean, I, I, the initial questions, I was just trying to get build a bridge, but then I wondered if we weren't disagreeing. But I'm still not for sure that we're just... Let not. me describe anyway, it. And, it's and okay. again, I'm, uh, I assume that when we say the word language, that this is inclusive of the mode that in the beginning was the word And it's through that word that we have creation. To imagine that there's any part of human experience that escapes the realms of the word of God and that we join up with the word of God in all that we are is the case. And so do you want to describe that in other words, I think you could describe that in one of two ways, and I, in a, in a sense, I think that's what you know. Somebody like Desmond 
may be describing these things as pre-linguistic in terms of human knowing. But of course, in a Christian understanding of creation through the word, there is the sense that part of what it means to follow God's thoughts after him is that all of creation is such that it is open to human thought and experience. And so given that understanding, uh, I don't know that phantasms or intuitions or any of those fall outside the, By the realm way, of language. You know, I, I, I usually leave you guys out of the conversation for maybe, you know, 15 or 20 minutes, you know, and I just talked to one of you. You guys have left me out for about five hours. I guess I can't help but to think of in the context of this conversation of prayer uh, and the way that we know in prayer. I'm, of course, thinking of the passage from Romans 8 that the Spirit intercedes with, you know, groanings that are too deep for, for words. And, of course, in the East, they talk about prayer as, you know, the first and foremost being an encounter. So, you know, in the biblical sense of an intimate sort of knowing, in some ways, is really beyond articulation. It really is prior to literally it's like i can't explain it all i can say is that i can experience it as a knowledge that um, i might be able to try to explain later or something yeah no i think that's right because you know once you enter in i think paul would, would agree with this that once you enter into language really paul isn't it in some way that you know once you enter into sort of the the system of signifiers that is language haven't you in some way then moved i, I don't want to call it like a second order you know way of knowing but isn't it like once you enter into the symbolic or into language aren't you at least taking a step back from a from, a, from a, like a, yeah it's more of a mediated um sort of way of communication that um that uh, I don't want to call it an obstacle, right? Because that's the wrong way to think about it. But what I, but, but isn't it at the very least a step back from an unmediated sort of way that as Christians, I believe that we at least hope that we can commune with God. through the Yeah. Spirit. Yeah. I think that's true. That's the, the depiction of prayer in Romans eight, that the groanings of the spirit are, they in some way surpass yeah, that's, that's human a good summation, capacities. Uh, and so we can participate in that. And I do think that they're, you know, thinking of my own, you know, story. And I do think that uh, there is a groaning that's too deep for words. Right? Whatever that pain is, whatever that groaning is, it's almost like the words fail to do it justice. There isn't, there isn't a language, you know, there isn't anything that you can really say. There's something that you know about your suffering that you really just can't put into words. There's all ways, and I think that there's all sorts of ways that we might be able to know like that. Like, for instance... If someone, if I say, man, I'm, I'm feeling really anxious, you know, I have a pit in my stomach. It's like, I, I know something's wrong, I guess, I just don't know what it is, right? We do this all the way, all the time. It's more than just a convention of language. You're saying, I, I intuitively know something. I'm thinking of this again in, in the context of prayer and as much as that, you know, when it, at least when it comes to the Jesus prayer, really, uh, now you're using words. So, it's, so maybe it's kind of interesting, right? Because you're praying the prayer. What's meant to happen there is for you to encounter Christ and to know him in a way that sort of gets beneath the symbolic. Like one would hope that I can know Jesus Christ, the son of God, apart from this inner web order of the symbolic in which all is confusion, all is identity through different. I would at least hope that there's a way to know God 
in a different way. That's not to say that it's not on a continuum, but but I guess what I mean is to just be able to know God in an intimate way. It's not dependent upon some sort of other referent that may be some sort of um, uh, identity through difference, but it's the way that you experience holding your wife's hand and walking through the park and not saying anything. Um, but, you know, and as much as we know Christ, and this is what I'm hearing Paul say, that, you know, Christ lifts our knowing, of course. He redeems our knowing. He transforms it. He, But I, I would think that he then surpasses also human knowing. Before we had that other kind of sidebar discussion that lasted like an hour, we very nicely kind of, uh, you know, John gave his definition for what is the dualism, why is it a problem? And then Paul gave his definition, what is the dualism and, and, and why is it a problem? And then we were going to then, then ask about, you know, could there be such thing as maybe then a provisional dualism? You know, is the, is the provisional dualism something that might be problematic? Or maybe it is in a way that I think that we might be able to have this discussion and maybe it's, you know, part two of the discussion or whatever is to say that, well, if we're going to talk about dualism and resurrection, then what we're ultimately talking about in this whole conversation is anthropology. David Bentley Hart in his new book, Theological Territories, has this wonderful little essay. It's very short. It's towards the back. But it's where he's kind of given some explanations on his translation, you know, the choices that he makes. And uh, he has this wonderful little essay called The Spirit of the Text. And I think that it might be able to help us have this discussion uh, and to kind of give us at least something else to talk about. But Hart, you know, has a great way of, of kind of being uh, provocative and helping us to think of things in a, in a different way. And, uh, and I'll be honest, I think that my, uh, my interactions with reading Hart over the past couple of years have absolutely been, you know, um, central into me, you know, becoming uh, orthodox, just because I think that he's helping me to think about things in a different way, not just in an Eastern way, but particularly with this translation of the New Testament. I mean, when that came out and I read it, I mean, I got to say, it really blew me away. It was like reading the Bible again for the first time. Uh, it was such a fresh translation. And not least, you know, one of the things that you can't help but to notice is the way that he, what he does with the word spirit. And that is, is that in, in your conventional translations, you know, take your pick, the ESV, uh, I wouldn't recommend the NIV, but if you want to pick that one up and look there, or in, in most of the other translations, they, they translate, they sort of make the decision, the translators, to tell you whether that's the capital S spirit, meaning the Holy Spirit, or the little s spirit, meaning the human spirit. And um, Hart, one of the first things that you notice in his translation is you go, wait a second, I'm pretty sure I've always read that as a capital S spirit, and here Hart is translating it as a little s spirit. So what's going on? Uh, and so he kind of writes this essay to, to kind of clarify this up, uh, clarify this, this issue. And he's going to talk then about a provisional dualism. But the way that he starts the essay, and I'll just do a quick summary of it and then we can talk about it. Uh, he says that a very great deal of theological history consists in ingenious impositions of ideas upon texts to which they are, in fact, quite alien. So that the history of scriptural translation has, a, as a rule, followed theology's lead. Right. So the result has been that successive versions of the Bible, obedient to the doctrinal expectations of their authors, have drifted even further and further away from the world in which the original texts were written. Hart is particularly critical of the NIV. But he says that for, for Paul and just for the for the New Testament, that the, the real world of the New Testament is an unsettingly strange one, he says. That, uh, that what Paul actually believed would strike the ears of even the most educated believers is quite bizarre. 
The big example that he uses in this essay is then the stark opposition of the two principles of Sarks or flesh and of Numa spirit. Uh, and then there's, of course, the third principle of Sike, uh, Siki, really, is, I think the better way to say it, you know, soul. Hart says actually weighs in pretty decisively on the side of the flesh, right? So in other words, flesh and soul are sort of conjoined. But then there's this other opposition, he calls it, between the flesh, the soul, and then the pneuma, the spirit. And so Hart goes on, he says, in many passages in the New Testament, and especially in some of Paul's letters, it's impossible to tell whether the author is speaking of the human spirit or of God's spirit. So he says in Paul's letters, the absence of a clear distinction seems almost intentional. He says most translators have basically decided to go ahead and just capitalize it, even when it probably shouldn't be. Uh, and then he says Paul's anthropology is considerably more dualistic than it is currently fashionable to admit. He is here clearly speaking of an opposition between the desires of flesh and of those of spirit within each human being where most English translations presumptuously and unintelligently describe an opposition between something definitely human and of the Holy Spirit. So you see what he's saying there. He's saying that the way that we normally read the, the, a lot of these texts in the New Testament is that there's sort of this antipathy between the human flesh and the Holy Spirit. Whereas Hart is saying, no, that's actually not what Paul's saying. Paul is saying that there's these opposite sort of opposing principles that exist in each of us called the flesh and the spirit and so he says that greek is conveniently furnished with definite articles you know latin is not so where paul is speaking specifically of god's spirit he is generally able to you know say the holy spirit because there's an article in greek Hart goes on he says theological tr tradition especially uh, in certain protestant traditions is loath to grant that paul has any concept of opposed moral principles within our nature especially, uh, you know, flesh. He wants to say that most Protestant interpreters are just going to say that flesh must mean something metaphorical. But he says that that's a sort of a violence done to the text. Paul certainly never meant to suggest that our actual physical flesh is somehow implicated in our separation from God. Is to misunderstand that, that, in fact, Paul does seem to think that our physical flesh is in some way it has implicated us in our in our separation from God. So, and I and I couldn't help but to think of Venti right here in the background, although I don't I don't want to be presumptuous, but he says it has become something of a fashion over the last century for theologians to insist almost exclusively on the worldliness of Christianity, or on how exuberantly it affirms the material order. Uh, the material body especially, as the good creation of God, or on how radically the early Christian view of corporeality is su supposedly differed from that of the more Hellenistic or Gnostic or idealist schools of thought. But the truth, he says, is far more complicated. He wants to go on to say that there's nothing like an absolute dualism in the New Testament uh, of the sort that would suggest that the physical world is, is ultimately evil. Uh, or something like this, but even so, he says that there is very, there is a, at least a very strong provisional dualism clearly present in much of the New Testament, in which the text speaks of flesh in a sort of critical, you know, critical terms. It's not just employing a, a vague metaphor, he says, for which some less upsetting abstraction may safely be substituted. He goes on here to say that many early Christians understood the difference between the mortal body and the resurrected body, whether Christ or ours, as the difference between earthly flesh and a kind of life that transcended the flesh. And so in closing, he says that at times the early Christians, no less than their pagan or so-called Gnostic contemporaries, had a somewhat jaundiced view of this cosmos or this age, as well as of this body of death. 
not merely as moral dispensations, but as physical realities. In fact, First Peter, he says in 3 and in chapter 4, even contrasts, again, whenever it's accurately, accurately translated, with Christ's death in the flesh from his resurrection in spirit. So as strange as it may now seem to us for Paul, one absolutely essential element of the salvation achieved by Christ is, so to speak, physiological. For him, the resurrection is a path to liberation from flesh and blood. These are not normally the way that we are, or at least that I've been trained, to think about and to read the New Testament. But again, hard to saying this is the strange world of the New Testament. You have to acclimate yourself to it. And so just the last thing that I'll say is that even whenever Paul distinguishes in 1 Corinthians 15 between the body human beings will possess in this age and that which they'll receive in the age to come, he speaks as the former as sort of a perishable composite of flesh and of soul, uh, a soma psychicon, right? But of the latter, that is the the spiritual body of an imperishable unity, a somo pneumaticon. You know, that is a, a, a sort of a spiritual body. He says, I refrain from changing every reference to spirit into an invocation of the Holy Spirit. I would regard doing so, however venerable the practice may be among doctrinally sensitive translators, not merely as a distortion of the text, but as an act of deceit. After all, as small a difference as my rendering of spirit, as little as spirit may seem to make in orthographic terms and conceptual terms, and in regard to the light it sheds upon the intellectual environment, in which the New Testament was formed, it makes all the difference in the world. And so our question, our next question is, is Hart onto something here? Is there such thing as a provisional dualism that may not be problematic? And we'll start with John. I was actually hoping you'd start with Paul. Okay. And then we'll start with Paul. (laughs) I was hoping you'd start with John. Uh, I'll take a shot at it. I'll take a shot at it. Um, I can't claim to to know what Hart might mean there. So is there a provisional dualism? I would say that there is the appearance of a dualism. And that dualism then infects everything. It is what John is portraying. And I think that there is such a tendency toward dualism that John then gets taken up as a Gnostic text or even whole portions of the New Testament. And clearly then, Paul is not speaking out of two sides of his mouth, that in one instance he says, oh yeah, and uh, there is a dualism, and in another instance he's saying. No, I I think that we can say that Paul uh, is consistent. And the way, and especially on this topic, he will be consistent. And that is that the world then is not given over to two principles. But human beings and their world is given over to this dualism. And so when he uses the language of the flesh, I think that in fact he is talking about this world of man that becomes a principle unto itself. It may be that it's the law uh, has become a principle, uh, a kind of end in and of itself. So it's not that we even know, you know, when we talk about flesh or material, the realm, oh, do we know what that is? Do Can we identify that as something that's separate from God's good created order? Well, we can't only in except that man would take it in his fallenness as being something 
that is separable. And in fact, in our fallenness, in our failed human understanding, there is that tendency then to live according to this failed principle. And so Paul will describe it in many ways. There's an enslavement. There's uh, the powers of the air. There, you know, he's going to describe this realm uh, as one that, in fact, we have become subject to. But of course, the to imagine that it's in some way a reality built into creation is part of the lie that is undone in Christ. Yeah, fair enough. I, I mean, I guess I would think that in one sense, Paul, that this would kind of fit in right with what you would want to say. And that is, is that, you know, there, there is in all of us, and you've talked a lot about this, you know, the soulish man linked very closely with whatever Paul means by the flesh. That there, that it, with that comes then a sort of uh, a knowing, a way of knowing that's probably violent, you know, that's transgressive, and that there is another part of us then uh, that is the, you know, the spiritual man, the part of us I think that is um, joined to God, I guess I would say. And so, John, how about you? You know, whenever I think of a temporary dualism, I mean, I would think that this would, in some way, kind of fit in with what Paul wants to say, and that is, well. You know, on the one hand, there are these sort of seeming, I mean, Paul Axton, you know, that there are these dualisms that, that seem to be formidable. They're real in some way. They're not ultimate. And so how about for you? Is there such thing as a provisional dualism? Yeah. So maybe like, I mean, if I was going to think about this as sympathetic to Hart, I don't think Hart means that, oh, there's a provisional dualism and that's bad. I think he means that there's a provisional dualism according to the wisdom of God. Okay. In the sense that what, you know, according to God's wisdom, he has created us as composite creatures that are mutable and finite, and we are to grow up, we are to mature, and a part of what that maturation means is becoming less mutable, less subject to change, so that uh, as we grow into freedom, we choose what is good, uh, we have the freedom to choose what is good. Part of that provisional dualism is that we will pass from being fleshly creatures to spiritual creatures and that this isn't uh you know it's not that oh well you know there was this huge mistake in creating flesh but rather this is all a part of the process of us coming to be friends of god and we were made this way because god loves us and it's all according to god's wisdom and it's we see this in the sense that when we start thinking about who is jesus that, uh, you know, Jesus is a fleshly person who dies and is resurrected in a spiritual body. That's according to God's wisdom. Like, why, why Jesus? Well, we would say because all, the all-wise God chose to bring us into full relationship and full communion with himself uh, by Jesus. So I, don't, I wouldn't want to approach the question as like, oh, there's this provisional dualism and somehow that's a mistake or that's wrong or that's on the order of fallen things. Because I don't think that would do justice to what Hart's saying there. But rather, uh, this provisional dualism is actually according to the wisdom of God rather than according to some fallen order. And that's just me trying to interpret Hart sympathetically. I think that's right. I mean, and it's quite the claim. Uh, he's saying that Whenever the text speaks of flesh and, you know, sort of critical terms, it's not employing a vague metaphor for which some less upsetting abstraction may safely be substituted. Like, he seems to be saying mm -hmm. that 
uh, and he says elsewhere, you know, that, that the spiritual is more. Spiritual. Yeah, and so I think the way you escape uh, being a Gnostic is you don't say, oh, well, there's this provisional dualism, and that's really, it's bad. It's bad that we were ever flesh. It's like, well, no, it's according to God's wisdom that we should be fleshly beings who become spiritual. Right. Uh, and, and, and that's right. But that it wasn't God's will for us to fall, though. Right. Into- yeah, and so the falling away, you know, what does that mean? Well, it's not like we become flesh when we fall away, is it? Right. That's right. It's more. I mean, I'm thinking of Maximus, the confessor here. In some way, we uh, the falling away. Actually, see, this is funny because he interprets a line that does basically. So the plain reading, but of course that would be the wrong reading, is something along the lines that. Uh, you know, we were once a part of God and we have fallen away from being spiritual beings to being uh, flesh. But what his interpretation of that as well, in the fall, what happens is we become oriented away from our telos, which is to be spiritual beings in friendship with God, uh, to our setting, we set them, our minds upon the flesh in such a way that it's, it's problematic for us, sinful. So, Paul, I'm wondering, uh, whenever Hart says that for St. Paul, the resurrection is a path to liberation from flesh and blood. Do you agree? He's presuming to know much more than I do about the material and the spiritual. And he's imagining that he can picture a a physical realm that is not pervaded by the spiritual realm and vice versa. I'm not that smart. I don't quite know how you can divide off one order from another. And so when I think of flesh and blood, I do think then that there is, we are given over to finitude, and certainly our bodies will be different. But it's not that our bodies are our problem or that our physicality or our fleshliness is our problem. But in fact, it is that there is that orientation that in the resurrection is indeed, we are given new bodies. But apparently those bodies can still do things like eat fish on the seashore with the disciples. It still bears the marks of the crucifixion. And so indeed it may be that the organs are not functioning, that the blood and bones obviously are not bound by the finitude that they once were. But to be able to say that it's not physical, well, I don't know what physical is. I don't know what material is. And I certainly couldn't divide that off from the realm of the spiritual. Thank you for listening to this episode of Forging Plowshares. You can learn more and join our growing community by visiting forgingplowshares.org. Please consider supporting at patreon.com slash paulaxton or by donating at forgingplowshares.org slash donate.